You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. The series in its totality will be three talks, proved from the past, being fulfilled today, and revealing God's plan for the future. So my job tonight is to uh, prove that fulfilled prophecy uh, is uh, reliable and good enough that we can have a belief in God in the first place and hopefully encourage you to come back for the following two talks. have to excuse the slides because I move them around and uh, they're a bit out of order on the actual slide. So why should we study prophecy? Well, the first point would be that Jesus used prophecy and also when things would happen. So the first words in Mark's gospel are, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. And so not only the events, but also the times are actually specified in places in the Bible. And then in Paul's preaching, he preached on Mars Hill, saying that uh, God made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, and does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things, And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might seek him and find him, although he is not far from each one of us. And so these are quite, well, they're very bold claims because the whole point of prophecy is to prove that God exists because the world is full of creation stories but we can only have been created once and so only one of those is right you can't have two creation stories that are right so God uses prophecy to prove he can tell the future and that he can do something that no man did could do And that's really important because if God exists, if he's clever enough and powerful enough to create the universe, we can assume that he should be able to write a book that man couldn't write. So prophecy is what God claims is the way that we should think about the proof that he actually exists. So what I'd like to do is just to consider what prophecy is. As Sam introduced it, it's telling the future. But there's two types of prophecy. One is very predictable prophecy, and the other is completely unpredictable prophecy. So, for instance, if I drop something in New York or drop something in China or drop something in Australia, you know what's going to happen because science is going to be consistent anywhere on the planet. So that's a prediction that 
can be made of what will happen if you drop something. But if you say, who's going to drop it? When are they going to drop it? And what will happen when they drop it on something and you don't know what it is? All those little details are completely unpredictable. They're one-off events. And so the logical prophecy in the Bible is very much stronger than anything the scientists predict. We can predict a new... Well, I can't, but people can predict new plastics based on scientific evidence and laws. But you can't predict the future like that. So the Bible prophecy is very much stronger than anything the scientists can come up with. So, as I said, um, we've got history in advance, we've got proof of creation, and I'll perhaps touch on one or two of those points as we go through, and we've got unpredictable prophecy that nobody could actually foretell accurately. And when we go into it, the Bible is full of accurate prophecies, sometimes in incredible detail, and maybe I'll give you an example which will convince you of that later. So what we're going to see um, is that uh, God is in control of history, that he knows history in advance, of course, and so that makes prophecy a lot easier. But we don't. We don't know what's going to happen. But God is actually in total control of everything that he has said. And then we ask the question, well, is everything revealed? And Jesus uh, says to the disciples, or the apostles then, in Acts chapter 1, verse 7, it is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. So we shouldn't think we're going to be able to find everything that we think about in Bible prophecy. But there is enough there to convince us of God's existence. And is it a benefit to study what has been revealed? Well, the apostles' teaching included it, as we've already seen from, from Paul. But he assumes in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 1, concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. So it's an assumed um, doctrine, if you like, or assumed knowledge that believers will study and take to themselves. Now we're going to have a look at Daniel chapter 2, which is quite a long chapter. Um, and I'd like to put the slide up and tell you just a little bit about what we're going to read. I'm going to introduce the chapter and give you the background, and then I'm going to ask Brother Sam to come up again and uh, do the reading <coughs> at the end of the chapter, excuse me. Now, the, the dream, well, I, I'll come to that in a moment. What I'd like to tell you about first is the first few verses. If you'd like to find Daniel 2, we'll be there for a little while. So I just want to run through the first few verses. Daniel is a captive in Babylon, and Nebuchadnezzar is the king. We're just looking at verse 1 at the moment. And one night, the king has a dream, and it troubles him, and he can't remember it. And what I'd like to take from the start of this is that Nebuchadnezzar isn't any fool, because he's fed up with the wise men, 
And he says, if I'm going to trust you to tell me the interpretation, you are first going to tell me what the dream was. Because he doesn't... You uh, really get the uh, impression that he's quite fed up with them in uh, the first five verses. So if you're all there, I'll start reading it. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed dreams wherewith his spirit was troubled and his sleep break from him. Then the king commanded to call the magicians <coughs> and the astrologers, excuse me, and the astrologers and the sorcerers <coughs> and the <coughs> Chaldeans for to show the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king, and the king said unto them, I've dreamed a dream, and my spirit was troubled to know the dream. <clears throat> then spake the Chaldeans to the king in Syriac, O king, live forever. Tell thy servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The thing is gone from me. If you will not make known unto me the dream, with the interpretation thereof, you shall be cut in pieces, and your houses shall be made an ash heap. Well, the king obviously isn't going to take any, anything um, <clears throat> without some sort of proof. And that's the introduction I've um, come up with for the end of the chapter. And uh, Daniel, uh, I should say, Daniel is one of the wise men. He's uh, at the University of Babylon being educated as a captive from Judea uh, in the things, in the knowledge and the wisdom of Babylon. And he's therefore counted among the wise men, and he is therefore included in this condemnation if the dream is not known. So he's praised to God, God reveals the dream to him, and then we get his meeting with the king, which Sam will read from verse 25, please. Reading together from Daniel chapter 2, starting at verse 25. Then Arioch quickly brought Daniel before the king and said thus to him, I have found a man of the captives of Judah who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, and the soothsayers cannot declare to the king. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets and has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head upon your bed were these. As for you, O king, thoughts came to your mind while on your bed about what would come to pass after this. And he who reveals secrets has made known to you what will be. But as for me, this secret has not been revealed to me because I have more wisdom than anyone living, but for our sakes who make known the interpretation to the king, and that you may know the thoughts of your heart. You, O king, were watching, and behold, a great image. 
This image, whose splendour was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. This image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay, and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together, and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is the dream. Now we will tell the interpretation of it before the king. You, O king, are a king of kings, for the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the heaven, he has given them into your hand, and has made you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold. But after you shall arise another kingdom, inferior to yours, then another a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all others. Whereas you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. Yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere one to another, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face, prostrate before Daniel, and commanded that they should present an offering and incense to him. The king answered Daniel and said, Truly your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings, and a revealer of secrets, since you could reveal this secret. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon, and the chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon. Also Daniel petitioned the king, and he set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon, 
but Daniel sat in the gate of the king. Thank you very much, Sam. So Nebuchadnezzar is convinced by whatever happened in chapter 2 of Daniel, and we believe the inspired record is explaining to us exactly what happened at that time. So just to run through those four empires again, we've got um, Babylon. Um, no, I can't, uh, can't show you the math. Right, down the um, list on the left, we've got Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and then uh, some independence from the Maccabees. And then the two legs at the bottom are the iron uh, legs, which symbolize East and West Rome. And then we have the nations, and we find ourselves in, in the, the feet era of the image where the nations are partly strong and partly weak after the Roman Empire has fragmented. So it's in our days that Christ will return and set up the kingdom, which shall never be destroyed, which relates to the second, uh, second and third addresses, really, that what is going on now to develop. I'd like to give you three references where days represent years. Your children shall wander in the wilderness. This is back in the time of the Exodus. And they're going to uh, search the land, which they've done and brought back an evil report. And they, are, they search the land 40 days, and they are going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. The second one is Ezekiel chapter 4, verses 4 and 6. And this is when Israel, uh, when uh, Judah has been uh, wicked according to God's uh, laws. They've broken the laws and God has to take them into Babylon, which is how Daniel got there. <clears throat> has to take them into Babylon and then they will be, the, the, all the Jews that wanted to um, follow the idolatrous ways of the pagans are being taken to Babylon so they can do whatever they like there as far as religion is concerned and then God <clears throat> is going to bring them back under the Medo-Persian Empire, the second one in the image, he's going to bring back the ones he wants and by that means he will cleanse the land of Israel um, and set up Jews who want to be there and not the others. Now Ezekiel gives a prophecy it's according to the number of days that they shall lie upon one side and thou shalt bear their iniquity. I have laid upon thee the years of their iniquity according to the number of the days. 390 days, so you shall bear the iniquity of the house of Israel. And when you have accomplished them, lie again on your right side and you shall bear the iniquity of the house of Judah 40 days. I have appointed you each day for a year. Now, those, I think, are the two best uh, proofs of the day for a year principle. And then in Luke uh, 13, Jesus uses it himself because he's talking about Herod. Go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out devils and I do cures today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I shall be perfected. And he's talking about two more years of preaching 
and then his sacrifice, which he will offer to God uh, in the third year from that time. Now, <clears throat> the first one I'd like to look at <clears throat> excuse me, is um, Jerusalem in 1917. Now, we're becoming right away from the time of Daniel, but this is actually a time period which we'll see in a minute. And Jerusalem, 1917, General Allenby, he's there, just there, walking into Jerusalem. <coughs> and um, what's happened is Britain in World War I has, uh, has taken, has taken uh, control of that area in accordance with prophecy that uh, the Jews would be restored to their land. And then uh, the extra detail that I was mentioning, there's a prophecy in Isaiah as birds flying. And Allenby was the first general to combine the Air Force and the Army successfully in war. And so there's a verse about that event. And when you consider the planes that they had in those days, they weren't much faster than birds, actually. The um, peregrine falcon, I think, is supposed to be the fastest bird. And it was about the same speed as these planes that uh, Allenby used in the war. So um, the Lord of Hosts did indeed defend Jerusalem um, and the, uh, the reference to the Asbirds flying is very accurate. It's not just an opinion. He, you know, if you read the military history, he is absolutely the first general who made use of the air uh, aeroplane like that. So that prophecy is very um, interesting. Now we take the days for a year and we've got a, a prophecy which uh, we'll come to in a minute which talks about the um, 2,520 solar years which if you think about it hours and minutes, the Babylonians loved 6 and 60, and that's 360. And then seven periods of those comes to 2,520 solar years. So if you'd start with the first year of tribute from Judah that Babylon imposed on them, um, then uh, what we have is... Um, sorry. What we have is the uh, first the, 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 um, period where uh, Judah was oppressed by, um, by Babylon. And then in 1917, they start this rest restoration to the land. So in Daniel 4, we get this reference to seven times. And the time is taken as a year. And it's a prophecy about Babylon about uh, Nebuchadnezzar here, but it's also got a longer-term prophecy to give us this period of 2,520 years. Now, um, well, was this prophecy fulfilled to the day? Well, we've got another prophecy in Haggai chapter 2, verse 18 and 19, and this is a prophecy about the 420th day of the ninth month. But the Hebrew calendar is not our calendar, 
and that's equivalent to the 9th of December, and that's the day, day of the month, that Allenby re-entered Jerusalem, or entered Jerusalem. So we've got a prophecy that's fulfilled thousands of years later, and it's correct to the day, if we put it together. And you wouldn't know that that was going to happen in advance, but looking back, it's a proof that God did know and it was brought to pass on that day. Uh, this is a, just a, a rather bigger slide, um, but it's the um, 24th of Kislev is the 9th of December in our calendar. So what's happening here? Because there are some um, prophecies and, and terrible things happen. Well, God is limiting the time of evil on the world. He limits the times of oppression. So there's a reference in Luke 21, verse 24. Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles be fulfilled. And that, if you remember the image, that's the head of gold in the image. And uh, that was the tribute on, on um, Judah. And then we get Jerusalem back in 1967. So this is a wonderful fulfillment. So we've got two fulfillments based on the time periods in Daniel that actually fulfill in relatively recent history. And that's quite important because Daniel is regarded as such an important book that people have been trying to prove it literally for millennia. Um, and I've got a slide on that as well. But so it's good to have these time periods finishing after uh, everybody stops arguing about Daniel having been written by then. Now in Peter, Second of Peter chapter 3 verse 9, um, God's purpose is not that people should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So prophecy really is a way of bringing about God's purpose, saying that he's done it in advance so that we can understand what that purpose is, believe in him, and develop a knowledge of him that will bring us to repentance and eternal life if we follow uh, his commandments. And so, in 2 Peter 3, he continues, Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So this world is imperfect because of Adam's sin. But Christ is going to put everything right and there will uh, be a new creation, not, not a, a physically new earth, but the earth will be cleansed and uh, changed somewhat, we think. And then people will learn to worship God and to be obedient to his laws and live in peace. And this righteousness will precede the peace that um, is needed for uh, just for life. You know, we see wars and everything, and we realize what, um, what a problem uh, man's greed can achieve. So, uh, there's another one here. Um, in Daniel chapter 8, uh, the, the uh, verses are at the bottom for you. I heard one saint speaking, and another saint said unto that certain saint which spake, 
How long shall be the vision concerning the daily sacrifice and the transgression of desolation to give both the sanctuary and the host to be trodden underfoot? And he said unto me, Unto two thousand and three hundred days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Now, it, it, it's minus three three four three three four BC was the Battle of Granicus when the Greeks defeated the Persians. That's the third empire taking over from the second one. And the second one was very favorably inclined towards the Jews for various reasons. And um, when that second empire uh, was conquered by Greece, Greece was not at all friendly uh, to the Jews and they desecrated the temple um, and uh, the sanctuary and the host were Jerusalem and the people, and they were trodden underfoot. You remember that prophecy that Jesus said? Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles be fulfilled. And in the Six-Day War in 1967, the Jews retake Jerusalem. And so that exact period and the application of it um, are... Proved, and we have another time period from Daniel, which is way past the date that anybody will argue about. 1967, of course, Daniel was written. So that's chapter 8, 13 and 14. Now, <clears throat> if you'd like to turn to Daniel 4, if you're still there, it's uh, just a page or two away. So there are four references together where seven times are mentioned, the phrase seven times. You remember seven 360s are 2,520 years. So let a, a beast's heart be given unto him and let seven times pass over him. And this is God limiting the power of the Gentile nations until the time of the Gentiles be fulfilled. And what's the, the last date is really an era rather than a particular year. Uh, there are a number of um, references, a number of years actually, where this prophecy is fulfilled. But it's always about 2,520 years from some event or other in the history of Israel. So the, the references are in six, chapter 16, chapter, oh, sorry, chapter 4 and verse 16, and then 23 again, these are relating um, very much uh, to Nebuchadnezzar's illness. Um, well, they all are, actually, his madness. Uh, verse 25 and 32. And the purpose is something that we've seen from Daniel chapter 2 and also from Paul's preaching, that we can know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomsoever he will. So when we see events going on in the world, we know that God is behind some of these, bringing about his purpose, limiting the, the evil that man has um, introduced into the world uh, with the object of establishing his kingdom. And that links in with the next couple of talks that we will do. Now, to get... 2,520 years, we have to go back before the time of Nebuchadnezzar. And what we have to do is to go right back to Nabonassar. 
and Nabonassar was like the Egyptian pharaohs used to chisel people's faces off statues if they didn't like them. And um, Nabonassar was uh, pretty much the same. He established a new dynasty in Babylon and uh, in actual fact it starts the, um, the year the Babylonian chronicle and, and, and such like that's mentioned here. So he was the king of Babylon, 747 BC. And how do we know that? Well, he arranged it so that his coronation was at the time of eclipse, an eclipse. So we know exactly when it was. It was 12 o'clock on the um, 9th, February 26th, 747 BC is when the 2,520 years starts. So um, he began a new era, era the blue um, underlining here, beginning, beginning a new era characterized by the systematic maintenance of chronologically precise historical records. And uh, an astronomer and historian picked up these and uh, made a new new um, system of history as far as the Babylonians were concerned. Claudius Ptolemy, in his work, The Al Almagest, this gave rise to an era beginning noon on February 26, 747, when the Anno Nabarassari began, so the year of Nabonassar to us. And <clears throat> this is all on Wikipedia. It's not... Uh, not um, difficult to find and check. So that's the first date in this um, series. And here comes the second one now. This is Romulus Augustulus, the last <coughs> Roman Empire, the uh, Rem Roman Emperor that was um, accounted as the um, end of, of the Roman system of government at that time. So this was the 4th of September, 476. And the second highlight there, Romulus is typically regarded as the last Western Roman emperor. His deposition marking the end of the Western Roman Empire as a political entity. And the, his de deposition is also sometimes used by historians to mark the transition from antiquity to the medieval period. So we've got two pivotal points, and if th these are actually um, worked out in the lunar calendar, um, which is the 360-day calendar, you basically take a lunar year and a solar year and take, split the difference, and that comes out to almost 360-day years. So that's where the 360 days comes from, and seven of those is 2,520. I'm going to go through these fairly quickly because time is going, but we have questions afterwards, so uh, please come back to me if, if you'd like more detail. So uh, this is another astronomer who's worked out what um, Ptolemy was talking about, exactly 1260 lunar years which we have to convert into solar years so um, here's the calculation 
February the 26th, 747 BC, to August the 22nd, um, uh, AD uh, 476. So there are 1222.5 solar years, and then you work that out to the number of days, and then you work out the lunar years and divide the two up, uh, or, or multiply them out, whichever you want to do, and the difference is less than 12 hours. So correct to the nearest day. So that's the second one we've seen, which is correct to the nearest day. And here's a bit on Ptolemy. Again, he's uh, featured in Wikipedia. He's a mathematician, an astronomer, and he wrote an astronomical treatise now known as the Almagest, and later known as the greatest... Uh, sorry, and then if you go back before that, it was known before that as the greatest treatise. So he's a very well-respected astronomer and historian. And this guy is quite interesting. He's actually an atheist. And he tells us that Daniel was written um, by about, well, by 450 AD when Theodosius II managed to burn all his books. And he was such a, um, uh, an accomplished critic that an awful lot of the early church um, fathers and, and what have you, they, they wrote about him and they said that, um, that they, we know of Porphyry's work through hundreds of quotes that they made trying to um, uh, disprove what he had said. And he was challenging Daniel. So by 450 AD, he'd written his book, died, and um, then uh, his book was completely destroyed by 450 AD, which was before AD 476. So that's our third period. Um, Right, and there's another one. God must have created language and mathematics because um, if you've got your, your Bibles open, have a look at um, Daniel chapter 5, <coughs> verses 18 to 26. And at the end of that little section, you'll see the, the uh, phrase given to us as mine, mine, tekel, euphasin. And if we look at the value of the Hebrew letters, mine is 50, mine is another 50, tekel is 1, and euphasin is 126. Uh, sorry, euphasin is 25. Put those all together, you've got 126. But one shekel is 20 giras. So that little list, when you look at the value of those words, um, comes to 2,520. And I did talk to a Jewish girl a long time ago, and I was talking about 1,260 years, which is half this period, and it's featured in Daniel as well. And she said 1,260, that spells venom in, in uh, Hebrew. So this is, you look at a, we look at a, a number and it's a number, or we look at a word and it's a word, but if they look at it in Hebrew, it's both a word and a number. So, we're right at the end of our talk now. Jesus is the king. 
And how do you become a king? How do you get people to take you seriously as a king? Well, the apostles' preaching was based on Philip preaching the king, things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. So they're about the kingdom and they're about the king. That was their preaching. So if I say I'm a king, you're not going to believe me for very long, um, if at all. So a king needs a people. 1917, uh, the Jews are invited back to the land. So they have a land and a people and a nation to rule over only uh, since the Second World War in 1947-48. And then at a capital city in 1967. So all we now need is the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and he will be acknowledged as king because he will have a land, he will have a people, he will have a nation and he will have a capital city. What he won't have yet until he has returned and gathered his followers together is an administration. And these really are going to be developed in the next two talks. Hopefully, I've given you an insight that there is some reliable prophecy in the Bible. It's proof that God does exist because no man could write it. And Christ really is going to come back. Because this is what we believe. There's a series of prophecies and we can see events. 1917, 1947, 1967. So we've got uh, a knowledge that something is going on, that Christ is going to come back. And he's going to call his saints away and they are going to administer the righteous rule that he will impose upon the earth. And that is a wonderful promise to each one of us. And we hope you will be interested and come back for the next two talks. If that's what God is doing, did in the past, what is he doing now then? And build up that confidence that if we are obedient to him, that we love him and keep his commandments, he will give us a place in a perfect world forever, not uh, just to die in an imperfect one. So there's a wonderful hope that we believe in. We also hope we can share it with you. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at bt f at cdvideo.org If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen.